This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Commerce Department, through the Patent and Trademark Office, has for several years operated a plan to help more women and minorities gain access to the patent system and fill what has been known as the patent gap. Now that effort has notched up a gear. For more on what's going on, Tom Timmons spoke with USPTO's Deputy Commissioner for Patents, Valencia Martin-Wallace. And let's frame the issue here first. What is the patent gap and Mm -hmm. what is the perceived causes of it, do you think? Well, the patent gap, specifically what we are looking into is women and other minority groups that are underrepresented in the IP community the innovation ecosystem, and more specifically as inventors and as patentees, patent owners. And how is it that from beginning stages of uh, our young citizens, three and four years old, all the way up through, that the education and the awareness of the STEM fields, invention, and innovation is just not there. And that culminates in the fact that When career choices are made, it's not as inventors, it's not as patentees, it's not as engineers and scientists, and really how that negatively affects our nation's economy. So basically then the feedstock for granting intellectual property to people that aren't that represented, it really backs up way before the patent system itself to education. Oh, absolutely. Um, As I mentioned, at the age of three and four years old, you know, we need to start bringing our children, our youngest among us, into the fold of STEM and technology. And not only bringing them interested in, which for me is an exciting field, but also how do you invent the ideas that you have? How do you really create within that sphere of sciences and technologies, and just from the youngest of ages all the way through their lifespan, building on that education of science, of ideas, of turning those ideas into some invention of how to move into the IP system and to really leverage what is here for our citizens to develop those ideas into patents. And then from there on, really, the education doesn't end. The education of an inventor on how to be an innovator, on how to be an entrepreneur, on how to turn that invention into something that is of benefit to the individual as well as to our society. And from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office point of view, what statistics do you have? What metrics do you have on the distribution of patents across the people that might be potential applicants? You know, we have been looking into this, the USPTO, and studying identification of women, of minorities, and who enters into our system to take advantage of the patent system. And really, it's been such a challenge for us. There's not a lot of data that's out there, but what we have found is specifically with women is that we've done a lot in the last 20 years or so to grow more women in the STEM field. So where in 2006, we may have had 6% women, we have a little less than 13% 
women who actually have their names on patents, which is huge growth there, but still a long way to go, especially when you see that women have grown not as fast as we would like, but still have grown into the science and technology engineering fields to 30% of scientists and engineers in the sphere now are women, yet only a little less than 13% actually have their names on patents. So there's a great deal of work that still needs to be done in helping women get those ideas into the patents and to develop them further from there. And that's women. With other minority groups, it's just such a challenge and a struggle to find the data of where they are. We do know, though, that it's much, much less within the IP system community and innovation community um, minorities than there are women. But still, it's a struggle. And that's one of the things that we at the USPTO are working on, as well as collaborating with other sectors of the innovation and IP communities to identify demographics, identify not only in demographic form, but geographically and economically, what areas are we not moving into, which groups are we not gaining access to, and changing that is quite the challenge. And not only identifying for each of those sectors, but each of those sectors of our community, then sharing that data so that collectively we can have a greater impact in reaching underrepresented groups around our nation. We're speaking with Valencia Martin-Wallace, Deputy Commissioner for Patents at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So the current event then happening is that there was a National Council Mm -hmm. for Expanding American Innovation. That goes back to the prior administration. Now it's been renamed the Council for Inclusive Innovation. I think the acronym is CI squared, and it's being chaired by the Secretary of Commerce. So it's moved up a notch organizationally. But what else is there? What's going on besides just a name change of an existing council? Well, it's it's an amazing council. And yes, we are so proud and so excited to have Secretary Raimondo as the chair of our council. The council has been together for uh, about a year and a half now. And the whole reason of being how it actually came out is back in 2018, Congress put together the Success Act, which mandated that the USPTO, in partnership with the Small Business Administration, SBA, identify the numbers, identify where we are having issues within women and minorities in taking part in the IP system, specifically as inventors and patentees. Now, the report that came out from that in 2019, the Success Act report, showed what we've been talking about already and what most of us already knew, that woefully underrepresented women and other minority groups within the IP system. And from that came the idea and the recommendation to stand up a council, the Council of Inclusive Innovation, formerly known as the NCEAI, where we would bring members of all sectors of the IP and innovation community together to address this issue, to address the fact that every step of the way, every area of an inventor's life, we as a community have to come together to bring education forth and awareness. So the council's main mission is that, is to develop 
this comprehensive long-term strategy that will have the appropriate impact not only today but far into the future of bringing a more inclusive environment within the IP system and creating and nurturing and supporting more inventors and not only more inventors but then more patent owners and beyond that even having them move on to finding the appropriate funding and commercialization of their ideas that not only benefit the individual but benefit this nation. And who's on the council? I'm really, really excited about the uh, members of our council. We have CEOs of industry that have stepped forth as part of this council. Um, We have university presidents that have also stepped forth. We have professional organizations within this sphere. We have independent inventors as well as small business owners. And the reason that I really shared each of those types of representatives that we have is because part of our issue is bringing our community together. The same as with if we want to have a greater innovation ecosystem and innovation economy, we have to have a broader, more diverse series of ideas that get us there. It's the same with this council. We have to have a diverse group of people and sharing their opinions, their best practices, their ideas for moving us forward and moving us forward with the large impact that collaboratively we will have. I guess it's safe to say that there's not that much that patent examiners themselves can do because they only can rule on what is before them. So the real task is get more before them from more people, Mm -hmm. and therefore the intellectual property Mm -hmm. participation would increase in that manner. Well, actually, I'm going to disagree with you there, Tom, because while, yes, it is the main part of our job that examiners, uh, the supervisors over them and our executives, are making sure that we are putting out quality product, we also are those experts in that field that can go out and do the outreach, do the education within our local communities across the nation to help bring forth science, engineering, the benefits of it to all ages, as well as teaching them when how to develop your idea, where scientists and engineers, examiners are. So teaching on that as well as teaching the patent system and how to navigate it and how to get the support and the access to resources that will help everyone from every walk of life have those benefits necessary to really develop into patents and then to move on to being able to commercialize those ideas. So yeah, our main purpose is to make sure that quality patents are granted, but we are there to support all areas of our community in the development of science, of ideas, and eventually, hopefully, quality patents. And this sounds like a long-term effort, of course. Do you have metrics, then, by which this can be measured over time? That is a great question because, as we were talking about earlier, one of the great issues is data. So in the strategy we are building through uh, the council, that is one of the main areas that we are going to be working on. It's not only how do you measure the impact of the initiatives, the actions that you're working on, but every sector of our community has every subsector that's starting from a different point. 
Not everyone is going to be as diverse or inclusive. So we need to start by helping them develop a maturity assessment, measure where they are now along this road, and help them to develop the actions and how to measure those actions for moving forward. So there's no one, just one way of measuring this. It really is going to depend on the sector that they're coming from, as well as where they're starting. And part of our strategy is to help them build those measures. Valencia Martin-Wallace is Deputy Commissioner for Patents at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but 
uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and 
reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.